So the question that comes to us now is, how do I share the gospel with someone who is from another worldview? Most of us understand the gospel from within our own worldview, and most of the things that have been written are about that thread that runs through the Bible talking about guilt and innocence and how we can move from a place of guilt to a place of innocence. And for us who are from the West, this is the common understanding we have of the gospel message. So when I am going into another worldview, and particularly into a worldview where honor and shame are the important things, how do I share the gospel with somebody from that worldview? See, when um, I go there and I, I come up to a Muslim and I want to share the gospel, he thinks to himself, I'm not a sinner. He doesn't understand the concept of sin, and for him the things that are forbidden are those things that Islam says. You can't drink wine, you can't eat pork, you can't equate something with God. I haven't done those things, therefore I'm not guilty, I'm not a sinner. And so if we come along and say, uh, you, we are all sinners, he's thinking to himself, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you eat pork, you drink wine, you equate uh, Jesus equal with God and so forth. So this message makes sense for us, but for him, it doesn't apply because it's, he's, not, um, he's not guilty of those things. So as we come and share our message, we find out that um, as we talk about honor, uh, guilt and innocence, they don't really comprehend what we're talking about. So we need to back up a little bit and talk about what are the basics of the gospel message. What is the gospel really all about? And as we said way back in the beginning, the problem is sin. And we start with this, sin is the problem, and uh, there are these three effects of sin, of guilt, shame, and fear. And people all around the world are struggling with guilt, shame, and fear, and how do they relate to those in their lives. So sin is the major issue. And when Jesus came, he came and he died on the cross to remove our sin. We must be careful that we don't exchange the word sin for guilt or for shame or for fear. Many times I've read in theology books or I've listened to sermons and the speaker or the writer has interchanged the word guilt and sin. And I read or I hear about Jesus died to take away our guilt and do so we are no longer guilty. I agree with them, but he is interchanging the word guilt and sin because they seem synonymous in his worldview. And it's a very easy thing to fall into, uh, but we want to make, keep that distinction that Jesus came to deal with sin. And as he deals with sin, then the guilt, the shame, and the fear will also be dealt with. But the focus is sin. So hopefully we all agree that the issue is sin. The struggle that we have as missionaries is how do we get people, Muslims in particular, how do we get them to see that sin is the important issue that needs to be dealt with? Because if they're not experiencing guilt, and maybe in their language they don't have a good word for guilt, maybe they don't even have a good concept of guilt, and uh, maybe they don't even have a word for sin. This is one of the things I noticed is that sin is, um, when I got over studying Arabic, they didn't have a good word for sin. In fact, the Christians used a Greek word for sin because there wasn't one in the Arabic language. So the language was deficient in being able to describe these things because the worldview didn't have the language that, that, that uh, made it important. So 
We would come and say, all have sinned, and the Muslim didn't understand what's this word that we're using that we're talking about, because it wasn't part of a Muslim vocabulary. It was a Christian vocabulary. So the big question that comes is, how can we get our Muslim friends to recognize that sin is a problem and sin needs to get dealt with? And so first of all is, how do they recognize sin? And then second, how do they find the answer to sin is in Jesus Christ? Because if they don't even recognize that sin exists, then they don't need an answer, and they don't need a Savior, and they don't need Jesus. So the big question is, can they personally see in their lives that they have sin that needs to be dealt with? So how do we get people to see the sin in their life? What a struggle. How do people personally feel or experience sin? Well, in the culture I came from, we talk about guilt. You feel guilty. You know you're guilty. You broke the law and you're guilty. And we say God has a law and we use the four spiritual laws and we have broken God's laws and so forth. Well, for the Muslim, he, he doesn't think in these terms and he doesn't see um, God's laws being broken. He sees God saying, here are the things that are forbidden and the rest of them are guidelines that we follow. And when we get to paradise, we're going to be judged on how well we followed the guidelines. Did we pray every day? Well, if we didn't, I'm still a Muslim, even though I wasn't maybe a very good Muslim, I will still make it to paradise, but I'll have to go through a process maybe in order to get there. And in fact, Muhammad presented paradise as a progression. And he said there are levels and there are progressions in paradise. And so there's this idea that you can move through paradise and progress. And so there's different levels and uh, things that you can, can work at. So uh, for a Muslim, he's, he's not overly worried about breaking God's laws because he doesn't see that God has a lot of laws other than what has been forbidden and even then, the Muslim teachers are not all in agreement. And the Quran nowhere lists, here are the things that are forbidden. You have to dig for them and pull them out and have them discussed and so forth. So he's not feeling or experiencing sin. So what happens if he's not feeling guilt? Well, this was my frustration as I first went to uh, and witnessed to people. I realized they don't feel guilt. They, they don't know they're guilty. They don't know they're sinners. How can I share the gospel message? Because it doesn't make any sense. But I wasn't recognizing that I believe the Holy Spirit was revealing their sin to them, but he wasn't using guilt. He was using other areas. He was using shame. He was using fear. They were feeling shame. They were feeling fear, but they weren't feeling guilt. So I was struggling to share the gospel because I only knew how to use the guilt-innocence thread that ran through the Bible. And I didn't know how to take the shame and the fear that they were experiencing and show them that this was actually a sin that they were experiencing them in their life. Now the question is, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? We as evangelists want to share the gospel. We want to go out, but the Holy Spirit works with us. Now John 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, when I depart, the Comforter will come, and it says there he will uh, guide us and so forth, but it says that he will reprove the world of, uh, of sin. Now what does that mean, that word? It means uh, to reprove or admonish or to convict. So we have a promise from the Scripture that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. This is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. 
So as I go and as I witness and as I share, the Holy Spirit is dealing with their lives and it is His job to reveal the sin in their lives to them. That's the beauty of being able to share the gospel is that the Holy Spirit is also at work. I don't have to convince them and do all the arguing and everything else all on my own. As I am led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will use the words that I say and He will use them to convict the person of sin in their lives. So um, this is the important aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit that I must be aware of. However, if I am only expecting that it's going to be guilt that he reveals to them, I can be disappointed. And this was my problem. We would go many times witnessing and expect them to admit that they were guilty before God, and they wouldn't admit it. They couldn't see their guilt. And so I thought the Holy Spirit's not doing his work. And so I labeled these people, and all around the world, the church has labeled them resistant because they are resistant to our message. Well, I don't believe that they are resistant to the gospel message. I believe that they have not heard it, perhaps, or understood it in their own worldview setting. And so, yes, they resist often what we say because they don't comprehend what we're saying. They don't understand the things that we're trying to communicate. So my question then is, is guilt, shame, and fear the exposing work of the Holy Spirit? So if I'm witnessing to someone and he begins to feel shame in his life, is that the work of the Holy Spirit? If I'm sharing the gospel and he begins to experience fear in his life and he's afraid of God and afraid of God's judgment, is that the work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it's the work of the Holy Spirit revealing sin to them. And I need to recognize that as a valid ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is there to re, re, uh, reprove the world and to expose them and to show them their sin. And he may do it in my culture by using guilt, but he may do it in another culture by showing them and talking to them about the position of shame that they're in or the position of fear that they're in. If you talk to a Muslim and uh, you talk to him about you are guilty before God, he, he doesn't know what you're talking about. If you ask him a question and say, okay, can you be in God's presence? He'll say, no. I say, well, why can't you be in God's presence? He'll say, well, he's Allah and I'm just a human. I'll never be in God's presence. Even when he gets to paradise, he won't be in God's presence. I say, well, why not? Well, because he's Allah. He's like the great sultan. He's, he's Allah. He's all powerful. I'm nothing. What is he saying? He's saying, God is in a position of honor. I am in a position of shame. I cannot come into God's presence. He will even express fear. And they say, God is all powerful and I cannot come into his presence. He, he, he realizes that he is separated from God because of his position of shame and his position of fear. What is he saying? The Muslim is agreeing with us. It is sin that is separating him from God. But he is feeling it in the form of the shame and of the fear that he experiences in his life. Not in the form of the guilt because he doesn't understand that concept. So if I want to explain the gospel and I start with guilt, I've lost my audience. So I have to find another starting place. And this is the key word that we're going to look at. How do you start to share the gospel? Because the gospel is that Jesus came to deal with sin. And so we want them to understand sin and we want them to recognize sin. And we have to do it in a way that they can do it from their own worldview. 
So guilt, shame, and fear are the uh, exposing work of the Holy Spirit. And so they might be convicted of their sin, and we don't recognize it because we're expecting convicting to happen in the form of guilt, but conviction is actually happening in the form of uh, feeling, uh, being convicted because of shame or because of fear. So what is the role of the evangelist and what is the role of the Holy Spirit? How much do I do? How much do they do? Well, I have been called to go into all the world and to preach and to teach. That means I need to go and explain to them the gospel message. That's why we use teacher-based evangelism. We want to bring them to a place where we can actually have a couple of hours to explain the whole plan of salvation, what God is trying to do. My job is to explain the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict them of their sin and to bring them to God. I have to be careful that I don't try to do the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the challenge that we face is we want to, we, we want to convince. And so, we, yes, apologetics is good and we like to get out and we like to argue, but we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is still doing His work and we need to be careful we don't try to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to teach. Our job is to be clear in showing the message that we have. Our job is to defend the faith. When we are asked questions, we need to be able to intelligently answer them, why we believe this way, why we don't believe this way. And then we need to draw the person and show them and bring them to the Scriptures and leave them with the Scriptures. That's the important message. We need to be aware that the Holy Spirit is at work. One day I was in the south uh, part of, uh, of Jordan. I was down in a, in a gas station. And uh, there's only two of us that lived in the southern part of the country at that time. And um, we were miles apart. And so I was at a gas station and uh, getting some kerosene. It was wintertime. It was cold. I was getting kerosene to fill my heater. And I had a whole bunch of containers there. And we were going along filling all of these, these tannikis, these containers with kerosene. The, the man at the gas station was a young man. I'd never seen him before. And so I greeted him and we talked for a few minutes. He was the son of the owner. The owner wasn't there. His son was doing it there. So as we started this, um, he started asking questions. With Muslims, it's always easy to talk about religion because his first question was, um, where are you from? And I explained what country I am from and he said, oh. So his second question was, are you a Muslim? That's always the order that they come in. Where are you from and, and are you a Muslim? Well, we're already launching off. And I said, no, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. His third question stumped me. Because he looked at me and he said, you Christians, you know all about Islam. You know we're right. Why don't you convert and become a Muslim? And I stopped and I had to think, Lord, I started praying, Lord, what do I say to him? And... Um, and, he's, and he was filling up these you know, kerosene uh, containers and he looks at me again and he said, you know we Muslims are right, so why don't you convert and become a Muslim? And I said, Lord, I'm going to open my mouth and the first thing that comes out of it, you're going to guide me in what I said. So I looked at him and I said, if I became a Muslim, I would no longer hear God's voice. And he said, what? And I sort of said, what? <laughs> and then I said to, and he said to me, you hear God's voice? And I said, yes. He said, you hear voices? I said, no, no, it's not like that. And he was, he was a bit confused, and so we had to talk for a minute. And he said, well, how do you hear God? And I said, well, God speaks, and God has been speaking all through history. God is a communicating God. He's always trying to communicate with mankind, and God speaks through his word. 
And so he has sent the prophets and he sent the teachers. And so this is God communicating with us. And so as I read the prophets, as I read um, the Injil and so forth, the Torah, this is God speaking. And God speaks to me and to my heart out of these things. I said God also speaks to me through other believers. He has people and, and, and as they speak, I recognize and God says, that's for you. And he speaks to my heart. And I said, there's been a couple of times in my life when God has audibly spoken to me. And usually it's when I'm doing something I shouldn't. And it's sort of, he's going, hey, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Roland, oh, yes. And it catches your attention. It's all, sometimes all he has to say is your name and you know what he's trying to say. God speaks to us. He might, he might speak to you through a dream or a vision. He might speak in many different ways, but God is a communicating God. I explained this to him. And he was listening and he said, uh, this, is, this is amazing. He said, I've never heard this before. And I said, that's because you're a Muslim. I said, Muslims, you know, for them, God is far away. Is that not right? He said, yeah. He said, God is far away. God, the, God spoke, the last person God spoke to was Muhammad. He's the last prophet. God doesn't talk to us anymore. I said, that's not true. And if I became a Muslim, I would lose that, that uh, communication with God. Well, that kind of blew him away. Well, we finished up the, the, the filling up our, our little tannikis here. We put them in the car. I paid my money. And just as I was leaving, I looked up, and the other Christian worker who was there in that part of the country had just pulled into the gas station. I said, do you know that man? Oh, he says, I know him. Yeah, I've seen him around. I said, does he ever lie? He said, no, he never lies. Because I knew our reputation was we always told the truth. And we had heard it from other people. They, they always talked about us. If we said, I'll be there at 5, I was there at 5 o'clock. You know, if you said you would bring something, we will do it. We don't lie. And even if it was to our own harm, we don't lie. I'll tell you a quick story. One day, um, I had a knock at the door. It was in our house, and there was a man at the door, and he was very upset. And he said, I'm a taxi driver. My taxi's outside. Someone threw a rock off of the roof of your house, and it came down and went through the window the back window of my taxi. I said, really? So I went and looked out, and sure enough, there's his car, and there's a hole in his back window. And he said to me, one of your boys is on the roof, and he threw a rock, and it went through my window. Well, I said, let me find out. So I called my boys, and they lined up, three boys. And I said to them, did one of you throw a rock off the roof? And the taxi driver said, no, 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 they're going to deny it. Don't, they're not going to tell you. I said, just wait. I've taught my boys to tell the truth. And so I said, did one of you throw a rock off of the roof? And one of them said, yeah, it was me. I said, okay. I said, my son did it, and he, he said he did it. I will pay for a new window for your car. And I went with him over to the glass shop, and we put a new window in the back of his car, and I paid for his window because my boy threw a rock off the roof, and I'm his father, and I'm responsible for his actions. That went all over the community because I've taught my boys to tell the truth. And so when he saw this man in the gas station, he said, oh yeah, he always tells the truth. I said, well, go over and ask him if God has ever spoken to him. He said, no, I can't do that. He said, yeah, go ask him. No, no, I can't do that. So I finished putting the containers in my car, closed my car, and he was over there helping the other Christian there, filling his car up. So I went over and I greeted him and I said, this brother, he's got a question for you. And now this gas attendant was all embarrassed. I said, go ahead, ask him your question. So he said, um, have you ever heard God speak to you? 
And uh, this Christian brother says, oh, yeah, sure. He said, you have? He said, yeah, God speaks to me. He said, you hear voices? He said, no, no, it's not like that. And then he began to explain. And he said the very same thing I said. God speaks out of his word and explained all of that. And then he explained God speaks through other people. And then sometimes God speaks audibly. And this man was just amazed. And we said, that's what it says in the Bible. It says that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. He said, I, really? I said, yes. And so we hunted around. We found a New Testament in one of our glove boxes. We gave it to him. And as we drove away, there is the gas attendant reading in John where it says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, what is the role, uh, our role? Our role is to share the gospel and to share the Bible verses. It's the Holy Spirit's role to speak. You see, they believe that God is far away. They believe that God um, doesn't hear. And so we need to come and say, God is a personal God. God is uh, the God who speaks and he communicates to us. And so we need to share that uh, message with them. Now, the struggle is, when we share the gospel, how do we um, recognize that they're in a position of shame before God? Muslims are in that position. But you see, the Bible tells me I am in a position of guilt before God. So if I come before God as an unbeliever, I am in a position of guilt. I am in a position of fear. I am in a position of shame. And the Bible shows us how we can come to God because he moves us from a position of guilt to a position of innocence, from a position of shame to a position of honor, and from a position of fear to a position of power. You see, as my unregenerated self, every Muslim will say, you cannot come into God's presence. And they are absolutely true. I cannot come into God's presence. And I need to be very careful that I share the gospel in a way that uh, communicates to people without manipulating to them that they can come into God's presence. But it's not me who can come in. It's God reaches out to me. You see, I explained to my neighbors, what would happen if I wanted to go visit the king? The country I was in, we had a king. I could go up and ring the doorbell of the palace. The guard will never let me in. I could go to the prime minister's office and I could go and say, I want to get an appointment to see the king. And they would look at my case and decide whether I might get an appointment. And they might book me months ahead. And the chances of me getting in are very, very, very small. Probably I wouldn't get in to see the king. So, I can never see the king. But what would happen if one day I'm in my house and a whole bunch of black limousines pulled up and the king got out with all his bodyguards and came up the stairs to my apartment and rang the bell and sat down with me? The king has honored me with his presence. You see, the king is the one with honor. I am not. And he can honor me with his presence. The, the Bible tells us that we cannot come to God. There is a gulf fixed between us. And that is a gulf of shame. It is a gulf of fear. It is a gulf of guilt. There is no way I can cross that gulf. But God can cross that gulf and come to me. And that's what he did. And we have a record of him doing it. He did it with all the prophets. He did it with his people. And the Bible tells us how God has made a way so that we can cross that gulf and come into relationship with him. Now, what is the gospel? As we share the gospel message, what exactly is the gospel? And there's three concepts in the Bible that show us the gospel. And they're big words. 
And uh, these are theological words, but there are three of those. There's reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God, this whole concept of reconciliation. There is redemption. We have been redeemed. And then there is propitiation. And the uh, Bible talks about propitiation, and we want to explain that. So those are the three that we're going to look at. The gospel is propitiation, redemption, reconciliation. That's God's part. Our part is always repentance. And that is our response as we come to God. So the gospel is all of those. So the first three are what God does. The last one is what we do. So let's spend a couple minutes and look at propitiation. This is the act whereby someone's anger is averted. Propitiation has to do with anger. And we're in a place where God is angry with us. The, New Test the Old Testament is many times where God says, I'm angry. You have sinned, you've built idols, and God's anger burned against the people, it says. And so we have this idea that God is angry. He cannot be in the presence of sin. Our actions make him angry. And it results in judgment on us. But propitiation is that act in which anger is somehow averted or satisfied and mercy is shown. And so we have this whole idea of, of propitiation. And in the Bible, we find three steps that are always taking place. It talks about the sin of man, then the wrath of God, and then the judgment of God that's coming. And the Bible is full of references to this. Uh, and it's full of all of these references to how God's uh, anger, God's anger is a huge issue. Um, for instance, um, Let's look at uh, Exodus 22. You shall not uh, afflict any widow or orphan. If you do afflict them and they cry out to me, now that's the sin of man, then it says, then I, I will um, uh, surely hear their cry and my anger or my wrath will burn. So that's God's wrath of God. And then the judgment says, and I will kill you with the sword. And uh, your wives and your children will become widows and your, your children will become fatherless. So this is the idea we see where it says the sin of man, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. You have this in Deuteronomy 6. You shall not go after other gods. So that's the sin. If you do that, he says, lest the anger of the Lord your God uh, be kindled against you. And that's the anger. And then the judgment. And he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You see this over and over again. This pattern that moves us from the wrath uh, from sin to the wrath of God to the judgment of God. Find it in Exodus. Is it too uh, strong a thing for uh, the house of Judah to commit abominations, which they commit here, uh, that they should fill the land with their violence? And then it says, If you provoke me further to anger, therefore I will deal in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. So this is God speaking again. In Zechariah, he says, I will bring distress on men because they have sinned against the Lord. And it says there, in the fire of his jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. So man sins, the wrath of God comes upon man, judgment is coming. This goes all the way through your Bible. You get it in Ezekiel, you get it in Numbers, you even get it in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son of God will see, uh, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So even in the New Testament, they're still talking about God's wrath. Well, very seldom do I hear messages about the wrath of God. 
we in the West have somehow ignored this and we take our message of salvation over God is merciful, God is loving, God is kind, and God wants to deal with the guilt in our life. Maybe people are feeling afraid and maybe there's that fear of God and they need to understand that God offers us propitiation. He offers us a way to move from the wrath of God to being in a place where we are free from that wrath. So God's anger rests upon all of mankind. And subsequently, the judgment of God rests on all of mankind. And it's there whether we're individuals, whether we're families, whether we're tribes, all of God's judgment is on mankind. And so we need to communicate that work of Jesus Christ satisfies God's anger. And uh, it satisfies and it removes his judgment. Propitiation, the wrath of God is satisfied. The judgment of God is satisfied. God's anger is an issue. And Muslims know about God's anger. And they heard about it as they read about the nations of Ad and Thamud and other ones who God dealt with and removed. And so they're aware of God's anger. The Bible tells us that sacrifice is God's answer to propitiation. And God's anger rests upon all of us. His judgment is on all of us. And it's through uh, sacrifice that we can appease God. And it's through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we have he re his removing his judgment on us. Propitiation, the wrath of God is satisfied because of the sacrifice that was given and it appeases the anger. Well, that's um, propitiation. There's another word in the Bible. It's redemption. It's another picture that's given to us of salvation. And redemption has got to do with redeeming. Um, it has got to do with uh, the penalty that is required by law to be repaid. And so when something is redeemed, something is purchased or bought back. And we can't pay our own debts. And so we are guilty before God. We are in debt to God and we cannot pay it. And therefore redemption has to be worked out. We can't pay our debts, but a redeemer has come along. He has paid the debt. He has paid the penalty. This is a legal kind of thing. And God has been offended. And God as, uh, and Christ is the mediator. We cannot pay the price, but the mediator has been chosen to pay it for us. And the answer to redemption is sacrifice again. Sacrifice is God's answer. And the laws of God have been broken. We are pronounced guilty. But God has provided a redeemer who has paid. Someone has paid the price. And so the work of Jesus on the cross is paying the price of our sin. And it's through his blood that was shed that the price was paid. Many Muslims may not understand it, but in the Western world, we understand the concept of redemption. And so it's the act of, of God paying the price. It's a legal kind of terminology. Well, the third image we see in the Bible is that of reconciliation. This is the act of restoring relationship between God and man. So the guilt is paid for, the anger and judgment is removed, and the shame is removed so that we can now come into God's presence and, ang and, and honor is restored. Now, the way that reconciliation works is we, we aren't on speaking terms. The relationship has been broken. 
and, and there's no way I can go back and come to God because God is Allah. He's the great God and I cannot come into his presence. But he has chosen to be reconciled with us because it's I who offended him. What can I do to send a, a mediator up? I can send a mediator, but the mediator always falls short because he can't offer anything that will appease God's anger. My mediation might be, I will pray a lot, or I will get my priest to mediate for me, or I will get someone else to go and mediate for me. But the mediator himself falls short. Of every effort I make, falls short. Imagine I say, I can't go to the king, so I'll get my friend over here. He can go to the king. Well, he's in the same position that I'm in. He goes and rings the doorbell. He goes to the office to make an appointment, and they don't accept him either because he doesn't have any relationship. So the mediator cannot come from humankind. We humans cannot mediate our own uh, with God. Even the prophets cannot mediate for us because they are human like us. So mediation must come from God. And he is the one who has chosen the mediator. And sacrifice is the answer to reconciliation. We cannot restore the old relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. This is why we teach, when we teach, we go back to the Garden of Eden and we spend the whole first hour sharing about the Garden of Eden and the relationship has been broken. Because Muslims don't understand that. They'll tell you Adam and Eve were created much the same as we are today and they make good and bad choices and God, he's sort of over all of it and whatever God did, well, God did it and it's not my choice if I'm carrying... We saw once some guys, they were carrying a big glass window to put into a house and as they were walking along, the one guy is kind of sloppy and he just dropped it and the window broke and they said, ah, oh, it is written this way and so God ordained that it would happen and they went back. So in the Muslim's mind, it's like... <laughs> You know, this is the way it's always been. There's nothing broken. It's always been this way. And so we need to show them that the relationship has been broken with God. It once was a wonderful relationship. We are out of relationship, and the only way to restore that which was lost is for God to restore it because we have broken the relationship. We are the ones who are at fault. We are the ones who are far from God, and He is offering us how to bring us near to him. And so the only way to bring us near, not only that we can come into his presence, the Bible tells us he is bringing us near right into his family. We are truly going to be near to God as we become as the children of God, the Bible describes it. And so the cross is the way that he has chosen to bring us near to God. So we have these three. Propitiation deals with God's wrath. Very powerful message for a fear power paradigm. And we have redemption, God's justice, a very powerful message for guilt innocence paradigm. And we have reconciliation, which is a very powerful message for God's honor. And that's a shame and honor paradigm and we have destroyed his honor. So all of these are dealt with with God's work on the cross. So what's our part? What do we need to do? Our part, mankind's part, is always repentance. It doesn't matter what worldview you're from, we are called to repent. That's the act of coming to God and accepting His way over my way. Even though I may not understand it, I still do it. A good picture is Naaman. Naaman had leprosy. 
And Naaman comes to the prophet and says, what should I do? And the, and the prophet says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman goes, that's stupid. The rivers we have at home are better. And he's heading home because he doesn't want to do it. And his, his um, people and his company come to him, his men under, that are under him, and they say, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? He said, yes, of course. Well, he said, he told you to do something simple and you were rejecting it because it's too simple? And he had to think about that. And so he decided, okay, I'll try it. And he went down and he washed seven times in the Jordan River and he was healed. So we have to choose God's way, not our way. It may not make a lot of sense to us. We may want something better, something bigger, something different, something more impressive. But this is the way God has chosen to do it. And our act of repentance is coming and saying, I will accept God's way over my way. I will turn from my way, my life and I will start to go God's way. I will turn from a life of pursuing my own honor, pursuing my own pride, and I will start accepting what God has done. I'll have to say, I am a sinner, because the problem is sin. Sin separates me from God. And no matter what worldview you are from, the problem is still sin. So the Bible gives us different ways to bring us to this problem of sin. But we need to come and show our Muslim brothers and sisters that the problem in their life is the issue of sin. And sin has tainted us. Sin has, has affected us. And just a, even a little bit of sin affects us. Imagine, I say, if, if you have a truckload of, of ground meat, a whole truckload of it, it's all coming from the, market, uh, from the slaughter shop, coming down to be sold in the market. And imagine if someone took one teaspoon of ground pig meat and they mixed it into a whole truckload of, of sheep uh, meat that's ground up. Would you eat from that truckload of, of uh, sheep meat? They say, no, wouldn't touch it. It's contaminated. It's the same way. A little sin in our life contaminates all of us. And so God cannot touch us. We are far from God because of sin in our life. And we just say, look around. Who is close? Who is following God? Who is, who is close to God? Who has a relationship with God? All, everyone is saying we're far from God. And that's the way it is. We are all separated from God. And Muslims feel that separation. So we have a common starting place to talk about separation. But redemption is where we turn from that life of uh, wanting our own honor Pursuing our own honor. It's where we turn from a life of fear, where we turn to Christ's victory, and he bought our victory on the cross. So the important thing is, where do we start when we share our gospel message? Because we will end up at the same gospel message. There are not three gospel messages. There's only one gospel message, and it has to do with Christ died for the sins of the world. That's the gospel message. But where do I start? If I'm with someone from a guilt-based culture, I will start with something more of a legal format, looking at uh, guilt and innocence and talk in that format because that's something he relates to. But if I meet someone who is uh, more uh, worried and thinking about honor and shame, I may start from that perspective. Or I may start from a fear-power paradigm and share the gospel from that perspective. But wherever I share it from, I will bring them back to sin is the problem, and help them see sin is in their own life, and Jesus is the only one who provides a solution for the problem of sin. 
Now let me tell you two stories as we close. The first story I want to tell you is about my friend Abu Faisal. Abu Faisal lived close to us. Um, we were out in the, in the desert, uh, out, in the, out in the desert with the Bedouin. We were, there were two families of us that were close together, and Abu Faisal lived down the road. And uh, I had never met Abu Faisal, but um, my co-worker, he was driving to market one day, and he saw, he picked people up. They were often on his, um, uh, on the road, and he was, he was driving along into market. There was this man and his wife standing on the road, so, uh, wanting to get a ride. So he stopped, and, uh, and they got into his vehicle, and he started driving uh, into town. As they were going into town, this was Abu Faisal, and he introduced himself. I'm Abu Faisal, and this is my wife. And I said, you know, first of all, where are you from? And he was from another country. And, and are you a Muslim or a Christian? No, he said, I'm a Christian. And so he said, well, I have a question for you. He said, uh, I've seen a film about Jesus. We found out later he had seen the Jesus film. And he said to us, you know, Jesus, he associated with thieves and prostitutes and, and dishonorable people. I don't understand how Jesus could do that. So my friend tried to explain that. And he said, but he's a prophet. How could, he, how could he associate with these people? And so he tried to outline some of this. And, and at the end of their little visit, it was only a short way to town, he said, well, can I come to your house and visit you? And we can talk about this more. And he said, Abu Faisal said, yes, please come. I, I was standing in front of my house. So well, was actually his tent was there. It was building a house in behind. He said, anytime you want to come, come visit me. So um, uh, the next day, um, uh, my friend, uh, he came, my co-worker, he picked me up, he told me about Abu Faisal, said, let's go visit him. So we went over to Abu Faisal and we sat there with him and we, and we talked with him and we had a good visit, we about probably an hour with him and shared some things of the gospel, just little bits to get him thinking. And, uh, and uh, because we never tried to dump the whole gospel because he couldn't comprehend all of it, giving him little bits at a time, talking about what he had seen in the Jesus film and some of the questions that he had. And it was a good visit. And we went away rejoicing. Oh, here is someone who is thinking, who is wrestling with the issues. Well, that night, my friend, uh, my co-worker, he went down to the store in his little village. And uh, there's two of his best friends were there, the store owner and another man who ran a nearby uh, orchard. Out, he had a farm with an orchard. And both of these men were there at the shop. And nobody else was around. And they said to him, Mom, you know, your, your vehicle, your truck was seen today over at Abu Faisal's house. He said, oh yeah, I was over and I went and visited Abu Faisal. And they said to him, don't go to Abu Faisal's house. And he said, well, why not? They said, just don't go. And he said, well, why not? And they said, trust us, don't go to Abu Faisal's house. Stay away from Abu Faisal. Well, what do you do? So he wasn't sure. And he came and talked to me and uh, my, my co-worker the next day. And he said, they, they say, don't go to Abu Faisal. I said, well, we've got to find out why. Like, what, what's the issue? So... We didn't visit Abu Faisal right away, but we, you know, we kept asking these guys, what, what's wrong with Abu Faisal? Why shouldn't we go? So one day, my, my co-worker was out at the farm, and he was there with this guy. He was a single guy who was at the farm, a single older guy, hadn't been married. And, and he said, you know, why shouldn't we visit Abu Faisal? And he said, listen, I'll tell you. Okay? He said, listen, Abu Faisal and his wife came to visit me here at the farm. And uh, he came into our house, and we sat down, and I gave them tea, and then Abu Faisal said, I want to see your orchard. And he got up and he went outside to see the orchard. And I was sitting there with his wife. And he said, the first time it's free. And after that, you have to pay Abu Faisal every time he comes. Oh, oh, this started to change everything. 
You see, Abu Faisal, his wife was a prostitute. And Abu Faisal would go around meeting people. He was very friendly, got to know everyone, and then would make his wife available. And that's how they made their living. And I had wondered about this because as I had met some of Abu Faisal's kids, they were all different colors. Some were actually black and some were Arab and some were... They, they, they didn't look like they all came from the same parents. But Abu Faisal called them all his kids. So very interesting. So then we had to decide, should we visit Abu Faisal or should we not? Now we understood when Abu Faisal said, Jesus was a friend of prostitutes. How is this possible? What was Abu Faisal really asking? So we went and talked to our wives and we said, how do we reach out to Abu Faisal and his wife? We want to reach out to them because they are wrestling with some of the things in the gospel. And we decided the best time to go visit was in the afternoon. About the middle of the afternoon was the time when all the ladies visit ladies. And that was just a common time. And a lot of visiting happens. So we said we will always take two vehicles, my vehicle and his vehicle. We'll take both of our wives. We'll take all of our children. And we tell our children, you play outside and run in and out of the house while we're there. And our wives will go and they will sit outside with her. And we will sit with Abu Faisal inside. And so that's what we did. And we would go visit. And then when they went to visit... And they would say, come in, and we would go in, and then we'd say, let's serve tea. Our wives would always say, well, let's sit outside in the courtyard. And so they would sit out, and so people driving by could see she was sitting with the ladies outside, and we were inside visiting Abu Faisal. And we began to share the gospel message. And it came to a place where we said, Abu Faisal, we would like someone to come, and would you like someone to come and really explain this all to you? And he said, I, I would. And so it was coming up to Christmas and we had an Arab friend coming who was, uh, who was brilliant at explaining the gospel. And so when he came a few weeks later, we said, we want to take you to Abu Faisal's house. And we went to Abu, Abu Faisal's house one night. He was there, his wife was there, all of his boys were there, his kids were there. And we had a visit and then I said to our friend, he's going to explain the gospel. And he stood up and he shared the gospel message with his whole family as they sat there listening. Now, when we spoke to Abu Faisal, we weren't talking to him about guilt and innocence. Abu Faisal never really felt that guilty about what he was doing, but he did feel shame. He was in a position of shame, and he ended up having to move from village to village and town to town as people found out who he was. He felt shame. He knew shame. And he was attracted to a Jesus who would deal with the shame in his life and would come to him and would talk to prostitutes and to thieves and to people in a position of shame. Where do you start the gospel? We started with shame, not with fear, not with guilt, but we started with shame because Abu Faisal was in a position where he felt shame. A second story I want to share is about another man who lived in a tent on the other side of uh, where we lived in another village. And uh, one, my, my co-worker, he had a little project where he would give things to poor people. And so every once in a while he got blankets or he got food and we would go around or he would go around to, to the poor people and he would try to provide them with certain things. One day some of the neighbors came to him and said, you know, if you have extra food, you need to take it down to um, this guy down in the, in the village. His name was Humd. You need to take it to Humd because Humd, he needs food. So we didn't know anything about who this guy Humd was, so we decided, okay, let's go visit Humd. So my coworker came and said, let's go visit this guy. Apparently, he's sitting in his tent and they don't have any food and, and let's go find out what's going on. So we went down to visit Humd. 
And there he was. He's all wrapped up in his blankets. He's in a tent. And he's sitting there with a little fire. And his wife and his kids were there. And uh, we started to hear Hum's story. Hum told us his story. He said, I used to have a truck. I used to have a job. And I used to have, uh, do well. And uh, I was, had my occupation. And I would use my truck. And I would haul things. And I ha- worked for a company. And we, we did different things together. Then he said, one day, I got a very bad headache. And it was such a bad headache. And I took some medicine, but it didn't do anything. And I had this terrible headache. And I realized someone had put a curse on me. And so I didn't know who it was. And so this really worried me. So eventually, I decided whenever I went out in public, I got a headache. So if I stayed in my tent, then I could be free of this headache. So I stayed in my tent. But the headache still started coming. So I realized... This person who's put a curse on me, they've done it through someone else. So I told my wife, you're not to leave the tent. So she stayed with me in the tent. But I still got my headaches. So it must be coming through one of my children. So I told my children, you're not allowed to go to school. You're not allowed to play. And so he and his wife and his kids, for several weeks, had sat in their tent. They'd run out of food. They were afraid to leave their tent. Now, what would we say? What would you say to Humped? We brought him some food. We gave him a few things. But his real problem isn't food. Because if you bring him food, he will stay there forever needing your food. His problem is a spiritual problem. He has a problem with fear. Talking to him about guilt, it's not going to help him. He doesn't feel guilt. Talking to him about shame isn't really an issue. He is experiencing intense fear. And he needs to know about a God who can deliver him from fear. He needs to know about a God who can touch him and deliver him from his headaches. And so the starting place with Humd was not honor and shame. The starting place was to talk about fear. And we had to think as we went back for a second visit, and we got together and said, we've got to think of times in our life when we were very afraid and God helped us deal with fear in our lives so we can at least be credible as we tell them God can deal with fear in your life. And so we went back and we began to share the gospel with Humd because we were sharing about a God who can move us from a place of fear to a place of power. And the fear is there because of sin. And, and curses work against us because there's sin in our life and we are powerless to contradict the curse because someone has maybe put a curse on it. Maybe it is something satanic. The only answer is if we can get power. That power is available through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, but we must accept that in our lives before we can have that power uh, in our lives to stand against it. So it's the starting place. You start with either guilt, shame, or fear, and it takes us to the place of salvation. It's the same message. There's not three gospel messages. There's only one gospel message. Jesus came to take away your sin, And when he takes away your sin, he removes the guilt, the shame, and the fear that are attached to it. It was no accident that God chose the Holy Land, the land of Israel, for Jesus Christ to come to. Because the, the nation of Israel experienced both guilt, shame, and fear. They had all three of these paradigms and in their religion, in their worldview. And to the north of them were the the uh, guilt-based cultures of the world. To the south of them over in Africa were the fear-based cultures of the world. To the east of them were the uh, shame-based cultures of the world. And right in the very middle 
stands the cross of Christ. That's why it was geographically there. Everyone could turn and look and see the cross of Christ. Well, did Jesus really take my guilt, my shame, and my fear? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ was struggling with fear. It wasn't just the fear of the cross. I believe that when Jesus went to the cross, he took my fear on himself. And so as my sin was laid on him, the Bible says my sin was laid on him, therefore my fears were laid on him. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he began to feel all of the fears of all of the people all over the world who would trust in him, and he took our fear on himself. So I don't need to be afraid because my fear was laid on him. You see, as they went through and as they mocked him, as he went through that court trial and they beat him and they spit on him and they took him and they hung him naked on a cross and mocked him, he was in the act of taking our shame. And all of the shame of all of the people all, that all over the world who would ever trust in him, all of their shame was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that the guilt that we all have was laid on him as well, and the sky turned dark. And Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the fear was laid on him because when he took our sin, he took the shame, the guilt, and the fear, all of those effects of sin were taken upon him. And so I can be free. It says when the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And the gospel message is that Jesus has taken our sin and with it is the guilt, with it is the shame, and with it is the fear. And he's moved us from a place of guilt to a place of innocence. He's moved us from a place of shame to a place of honor. I'm now called a child of God. I'm now called a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And the Bible talks about heaven and all the ways that we will be honored as we are honored with Christ together in heaven. And he's moved me from a place of fear to a place of power. And I can now come boldly into the presence of God. That is the gospel message. It's where you start. And very often we start with our Muslim friends with the wrong place and they never understand salvation because we haven't put it in a terms of worldview that they can grasp this really is meaningful to me and I can accept this and I need to repent and I need to accept the, that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and I feel my sin, and when that sin is gone, I have been transformed from this place to this place. That is the gospel message.